Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I'd invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, as we first pray and then read the word of God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The NASB says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark. Please be seated. So church, this was a message I was supposed to preach the end of January, but then my wife decided to have a baby. (laughs) So that plan was interrupted. But the good news of God's word is that no matter if it's the first century in Athens, the 16th century in Germany, or the 21st century in New York City, it is still powerful, it is still relevant, and it still will not return to the Lord void. So this morning's sermon is called The Flood. And as we've just read in Genesis chapter 6, the flood was a historical event. And our passages, Genesis chapter 6, describes the setup to the flood, which was an instrument of universal judgment in a world that forgot about God. And the flood represented God taking a specific action for a specific reason at a specific point in history. Now I'm going to admit off the bat that one of my motivations for preaching this to you today is personal. I'll tell you why. Because in my younger years, when I was far younger than I am now, back then, I wouldn't have called myself an atheist, but I was this close. I was on the border between believing God and rejecting him altogether, and I peeked out into the, what seemed to be the grassy knolls of atheism. And I looked to my left, and I looked to my right, and I scratched my head wondering, hmm, maybe it's wiser, maybe it's greener on the side of atheism. And one of the reasons, one of the things that pushed me, that nudged me, towards lacking belief was this story of the flood. Because back then I read Genesis 6 and I said, how could a God that is so loving, that's so graceful, that's so compassionate, how could he allow the flood to happen? 
I mean, there were innocent men, women, and children who had families, who had businesses, there were communities, there were livelihoods. How could a God who's supposedly graceful allow the flood to happen? Doesn't that make God mean? Doesn't that make God into a bloodthirsty, merciless tyrant that delights in the, in the suffering of people here on earth? That's where my mind was, and that's what gave me a problem with Genesis chapter 6. I thought to myself, isn't God mean? And here's what this sermon's going to do. It's going to disprove the hypothesis that God is mean. It's going to shatter that theory to pieces by providing you with three separate points. I'm going to disprove the theory that God is mean based upon the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6. Because in looking at these verses... It's going to teach us something about God. It's going to give us insight to who he really is. And when we take a closer look at these verses, we're going to gain insight into the nature and character of God and unlock a treasury of richness and depth and understanding found in God's word. So here's the first thing that I'm going to say. Remember, we're beginning with the skeptical position that God is mean. Here's the first thing that I'll say. People become angry at God because they think he's mean. He seems to be mean, but it's not meanness they're angry at. What they're really angry at is the holiness of God. People think God is mean, but it's not meanness they're angry at. What they're angry at is the holiness of God. So point number one, God is not mean. What God is, is holy. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. The next verse, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Psalm 34, sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And 1 Peter 1, 15, he who called you is holy. Now, when the Bible uses the word holy, there's a secondary meaning and a primary meaning. When the Bible uses the word holy, the secondary meaning is secondary. The primary meaning is primary. The secondary meaning of holy in the Bible means being pure in the sense of superior moral qualities, something being sacred, meaning you have stuff over here and then stuff next to it that's really pure, that's really clean, and that stuff is holy. But the primary meaning of the word holy in the Bible means separate, means other means that which is different from something else. We live in an unholy world where things are common and earthly, but God is holy, meaning he is uncommon and heavenly. And because God is holy, because he is separate, he is distinct, he is other, he is so perfect and exists in a way that we cannot even imagine. God is holy. He is other, which means he is supernatural. God is self-existent. You and I, 
We live as a function of something else. We need, we need air to breathe. We need food to eat. Our existence depends on other things. But God is, guess what? God is self-existent. He exists in a way that you and I don't because he is holy. He is separate. He is other. God is so pure and holy, he can't even tell a lie if he wanted to. For you and me, telling a a quote-unquote little white lie comes naturally. But God couldn't even do that if he tried because he is holy. Not only does God tell the truth, he's the definition of truth itself. He can't help but being true and telling the truth all the time. That sounds alien. That sounds weird. Yes, you're right. Because he is holy. He is other. God is so holy that every thought that appears in his mind is pure and true and comes from a posture of perfect, unadulterated, pure love. There's no self-centeredness in God at all, which is a foreign concept, and it is foreign because God is holy. He is separate, and he is other. And the holiness of God does two things simultaneously. The holiness of God, it fascinates us, but it also terrifies us. The holiness of God fascinates us because we're now in the presence of an awesome, mysterious power, an awesome, mysterious entity. But the holiness of God also terrifies us. Whenever you look in the Bible and someone comes face to face with a messenger of God or an angel, what does the Bible say? They were afraid or they bowed down on their face and even worshiped the being and the being told them, no, don't worship me. Why do they fall down in fear? Because in the presence of holiness, something foreign or alien, it terrifies them. And we have this thing in the modern world called xenophobia. It's a fear of foreigners. It's a fear of aliens. Because here's the thing about human beings. We feel comfortable with the things that we're used to. We feel uncomfortable with the things that we're not used to. And when something is alien or foreign and we're not used to it, we become afraid and we begin making what? Derogatory comments. We begin saying things like that other group of people is mean or we begin rejecting them because the alienness of it makes us uncomfortable and unsettles us. And this is why the holiness of God terrifies people because we fear that which is different. So God is not mean, God is holy. And now that we understand, now that we appreciate God is holy, what I wanna make crystal clear now is why no human being could ever just be good and stand face to face with a holy God. There's a reason why someone just can't be good and make it to heaven. Because when it comes to justifying oneself in the presence of a holy God, human good doesn't stand a chance. Let me make this crystal clear. Let's say we have a lady, her name is Susie Q. Let's say Susie Q is good. She comes to church every Sunday. She's there 10 minutes early and always the last person to leave. She not only tithes, but she gives an extra amount on top of her tithes. Her children always look well put together. They're so well behaved. They always get the most number of gold stars in Sunday school. 
Susie Q is so nice to work with. She's pleasant, she smiles, and everyone always gives her five stars. Whenever someone moves into the neighborhood who's new, Susie Q always is the first one to bake them an apple pie. Susie Q is good. Everybody wants to be like Susie Q. So why can't Susie Q make it to heaven? Because after all, she's good, right? She can knock on heaven's door and say, Hey God, I'm good. I'm Susie Q. Can't you let me in? Well, here's a little problem. See, you and I are human beings, right? So when we as human beings judge someone else, we judge someone else based upon what we can see on the outside. We can see what the person is doing, but we can't look deep, deep down inside of their hearts, can we? Now here's what happens when God takes a look inside Susie Q's heart. He finds out that in her heart of hearts, Susie Q doesn't like brown people. He finds out in her heart of hearts that Susie Q, in her heart of hearts, is a legalist, meaning she's doing all of these things and is being good so she can come and knock on God's doorstep and say, God, now you owe me something. That's the problem when another human being judges someone else and they're just good. Because you and I, being unholy, not being perfect, can only judge what we see on the outside. So one who is imperfect is now judging someone else who is imperfect. But God takes a deeper look and he goes right down to the depths of your soul and discerns what is in your heart. Human good is a beggar that is sitting at the base of the mountain of holiness. And that beggar is thin and wasted away. And that mountain of holiness is billions of trillions of miles high. And at the top of that mountain of holiness is God. The slopes on that mountain are vertical, and there is no way that beggar, being good, being a human definition of good could ever compete with the holiness of God because God's holiness means he is separate. He is other. And the only way that beggar could only make it to the top of the mountain of holiness is if God was his escort. So human good doesn't stand a chance in the face of a holy God, because God is not just merely good, He is holy. And I'm sure there were plenty of folks in the time of the flood who looked at themselves in the mirror and said, I'm good, or who looked at their neighbors and said, they're good. But even there on their best day, their good could never compete with the holiness of God. So God is holy, and from his holiness flows his justice. Point number two. God is not mean. What God is, is just. He is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, God's work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Job 34.12, surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Isaiah 30.18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Now this is the point. Every sin ever committed from eternity past to eternity future is a violation of God's justice. And when I say sin, I'm not just talking about what someone does. 
I'm also talking about what someone thinks because those are violations of the justice of a holy God. So if Susie Q was a murderer indeed, she could also be a murderer in thought, not liking or disdaining other people who are not like her. And because God is holy, because God is just, he can never say never mind to sin. God's justice, God is unchanging. He will never stop being holy. He will never stop being just. And his justice must punish sin. Someone has to pay for it. And during the time of the flood, the entire globe was brimming over with sin. So God's justice said, this must end. It's a violation of right and wrong. God must restore things the way they ought to be. And therefore, the flood was totally and completely just. But wait a minute. But wait a minute. Genesis 6, 8 says... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wait a minute, Pastor, I'm getting confused now. You told me God is holy. You told me God is just. I was following you for a second, so I get it. In the time of Noah, when the flood happened, the entire earth was filled with sin. All flesh were corrupt, and the earth was filled with violence. So how is it that one individual, Noah, was saved? Because the story in Genesis 6 doesn't end with the flood, does it? There's an entire Bible after Genesis 6. The story of the flood doesn't end with the flood. Because, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. During the time of the flood, God didn't have to. God was not acting mean. You know why? He didn't have to actively search for sinners to punish. You know why? Because the stench of sin became so big, it rose up to heaven. God didn't have to get up to find a sinner to punish. But what God did actively do is search for someone to save. And that explains why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What explains this? What explains the exception to the flood being Noah? And that is the third point. No, beloved, no church. God is not mean. What he is, is full, full, full of grace. Full, full, full of mercy. Full, full, full of long-suffering. Full, full, full of compassion. Full, full, full of unearned, unmerited favor. God is full of grace. And when we take a step back and look at the canon of Scripture as a whole, from Genesis through Revelation, what we see as a whole isn't a God who interacts with people with justice, isn't a God who interacts with people with wrath. We see in its totality a God who interacts with humanity in general with his grace. In the Garden of Eden, do you know what happened? You had human beings who before God breathed into them, they were dust. And then God breathed the breath of life into them. Then they became a human being. Do you know what happened in the Garden of Eden? Dust revolted against God. Dust revolted against God. The holiness of God and the justice of God would have said the story of humanity ends right there, but it didn't because the grace of God had compassion and treated Adam and Eve with unearned favor. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are? The Ten Commandments are instruments of grace. People look at the thou shalts and the thou shall nots and say, that's God's justice. No. In the Ten Commandments, God is giving us contours. 
He says, as long as you live within the contours of this box, you are now living in my instruction. Do you know, do you know what happens if you or I step out of that box? We are now stepping out of God's justice, and now who has to judge us? God will. The Ten Commandments are there to protect us because God now knows if we step out of that instruction, the one who will have to judge us is Him. The commandments are there as a function of grace to protect us from God's justice. The dilemma then in thinking about God is not why he is quote-unquote mean, but rather why he is in stricter and tolerates rebellious creatures who sin against him. Because ultimately, beloved, what sin is, is dust revolting against God, and that revolt amounts to cosmic treason in the eyes of a holy God. Now we get it. Now we understand who God is, that God is holy, that God is just, and that God is merciful. Now we're going to take that understanding and dive back in Genesis 6, and it's going to make the narrative of the flood so much clearer. So what does verse 5 say, Genesis 6, 5? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 to 12 says, The earth was filled with violence, and that all flesh was corrupted. Verse 5 begins by saying that the Lord saw. People on planet Earth at the time lived as if God didn't see, but God is telling us that he saw everything. And not only that, every intent of the heart of humankind was on evil, which means people were not only doing evil, but they delighted in it. In other words, evil polluted all of their hearts, all of their strength, and all of their mind. And that intent was on evil continually, meaning there was a continual assault, there was a continual affront to God's holy justice. And the earth at the time of Noah represents the height of sin, where people tell themselves, we can now live without God. We can now live as if he's not there which tells us because the entire earth at that time was filled with violence, was filled with evil, it was a violation of God's holiness, and the flood was now a just judgment. But let's now think about this for a second. What exactly caused the flood? Every effect must have a cause. What was the cause of the flood? Did it begin with an angry God? Did it begin with a mean tyrant who was actively searching for sinners to punish? Beloved, what caused the flood wasn't God actively searching for sinners to punish. What caused the flood was us. Because it was the sin of humankind on the earth at that time, which was a violation of God's justice. And that is what deserved judgment. That is what deserved wrath. That is what caused the flood to happen. If you took away all the sin of humankind in Genesis 6, guess what? There wouldn't have been a reason for a flood. What was causal in that universal global flood was the iniquity of humankind. Because ultimately, God and sin are eternal incompatibilities. But once again, the story of the flood didn't end there, did it? Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's take a step back. 
I can't tell you how many, I can't give you an exact scientific answer for how many people were alive on planet Earth during that time. But I'm going to take a guess and say it was at least a couple million. What does verse 8 say? It says, but Noah. It doesn't say Noah and his sons. It doesn't say Noah and his wife. It doesn't say all the members of Noah's church. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, which tells us what? That because of one human being, God, by his grace, decided to save people from his judgment. Because of one person, there was a delay in the flood coming for 100 plus years. That is grace in action. And time and time again, the Bible tells us if there is one intercessor, if there is one individual that finds favor in the eyes of God, he is willing to turn his wrath away for the preservation of those who call upon his name. And on top of that, God didn't wake up Monday morning and say, hey, Noah, there's going to be a flood this afternoon. No. When we pull together information from the rest of the narrative in Genesis, we find out that God told Noah there was going to be a flood, and there was at least a 100-year gap between him telling Noah, build the ark, and the waters beginning to flow on the face of the earth, which tells us, That God sent his word first, he sent his warning first, and then there was a gap of time. And during that 100-year period, people had time to repent. People had time to change their ways. Noah's neighbors could have said, hey, Noah, why are you building this massive ship on dry ground? Noah would have said, hey, thanks for asking. A flood is coming. God is angry. And people would have shrugged their shoulders and said, no, we don't believe you, Noah. This God guy isn't real. People could have seen animals coming two by two on the ark. They would have seen something miraculous. They would have seen lions and tigers and bears going two by two into the ark. The lions weren't attacking the bears. The elephants weren't mauling the foxes. Noah, why is this happening? Because it's a miraculous act of God. And by his grace... He is preparing this ark to preserve those who believe in him from certain destruction. For 100 plus years, Noah could have had service every Sunday. He could have prayed for revival. He could have prayed for new people to come into his church every single week. But no one ever did. But it was the grace of God that allowed for a gap to exist between him sending forth his word, him sending forth his warning, and then the flood taking out the earth. God gave Noah and the earth an advance warning plus a massive gap of time. So the holiness of God gives us insight into the being of God. The justice of God gives us insight into the mind of God. But the grace of God gives us insight into the heart of God. Verses 6 to 7, Genesis 6, verses 6 to 7 says... The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. Your Bible may not say the Lord was sorry. It may say the Lord regretted. It may say God relented. And this is just another example of English not being able to perfectly translate what the original Hebrew says. When the text says the Lord was sorry, that comes from a Hebrew word, nakam, which means to be in a state of sorrow. 
The text goes on later to say that God was grieved. That comes from a root that means to be filled with grief or pain. When the text says the Lord was nakam, he was filled with sorrow, this isn't meant to tell us that God changes his mind. This isn't meant to tell us that God is a fickle teenager that didn't see the result of humankind coming. This isn't meant to give us the false idea that God is not sovereign, that God truly isn't in complete control of all of reality. That phrase, that sentence is there where it says the Lord was sorry. It is there because God wants us to understand. God wants us to know that when he pronounces judgment, because he cannot deny his justice, he pronounces judgment because he is just, but he doesn't do so gleefully. He doesn't do so happily. Because that is where the heart of God comes in. When we have insight into the fact that God is graceful, we have insight into God's heart. And when he pronounces a just judgment, he enters into a state of sorrow and he is filled with grief. What this text is telling us, beloved is that when human beings sin, even those human beings who ultimately will reject God, it breaks God's heart because they are still his creatures that he breathed his breath of life into. And God experiences nakam, sorrow over judgment that is just. This breaks God's heart. This is why he warns us. This is why the flood narrative is there. It's a warning. It was a warning for people then, and it's a warning for people now. This is why he gives us his law. This is why he gave us the prophets. This is why we have God's word in the Bible. God is sending us his word. He's sending us his warning because he's not happy and delighted when he must judge people in wrath. It breaks God's heart. And he warns us so that the elect will come to repentance and so that the reprobate will be without excuse. This is what it says in Psalm 78, 38 to 39. But God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. The flood is what happened as a function of the justice of God, but Noah and his family being reserved was a function of the grace of God, the compassion of God. So God's response to judgment that is necessary is not delight, but being filled with pain, just as a troubled parent would know. They must discipline their child to bring them around and to save them from worse harm in the future. That is the same experience that our loving Lord and Father experiences. So if you, somewhere out there in the world, look at the flood narrative like I did, and there was something pierced on the inside. Something unsettled you. Your heart was pierced over the fact that wrath and judgment had to happen. Now you have insight into the heart of God. Because God experiences nakam, sorrow, over judgment that is just and necessary. Now there are many in the church who hear about the holiness of God, who hear about the justice of God, and because God is other, and because God is just, they feel distant, they feel remote, they feel as if the holiness of God 
puts them outside of the promise and have distanced themselves farther and farther away from their Creator. Because many people can hear about God's holiness and His justice so much, they forget that God is also full, full, full of grace. And people believe the delusional idea that in some way, shape, or form, God has forgotten about His children. God has forgotten about His elect. And here's God's response to that. Isaiah 49, 14-15 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Here's God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. God's heart is saying, yes, he is holy. Yes, he is just. But he is also full of grace and compassion. And if God's mercy didn't triumph over his judgment, you and I in the world simply wouldn't exist. For the person who thinks they are distant, for the person who thinks they are so far removed from God that God has forsaken and forgotten about them. God is telling us, just as a woman who nurses a child at her breast can't forget about that young baby, so God will never forget about his elect. God can never forget about his elect. And when we go forward now to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not the holiness of God that primarily explains Jesus. It's not the justice of God that primarily explains Jesus. What primarily explains Jesus is the love, is the grace of God. For God so loved the world that his son took the form of a human being and died for the sins of his elect. God suffered for his children. Do you know why? Because God loves his children. God's justice could never say never mind to sin, but God's love could never say never mind to those whom he knew before the foundation of the world. Beloved, real love hurts. Real love suffers. You don't need an advanced degree to figure that out. You need real life. Real love always, without fail, suffers. Real love hurts, and that is what God did for us. He died and he suffered for us as a function of his love. This is what Nicholas Wolterstorff writes in Lament for a Son. Quote, God is love. That is why he suffers. God so suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffering. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. God is suffering love. End quote. And it's the love of God manifested by his grace which triumphs in the story of the flood. What does verse verse 8 say? The turning point of the flood narrative. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The same eyes that saw the sin of humankind also saw Noah. And by God's grace, Noah now found favor in the eyes of God, which tells us something. That God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to sin, but God is also not a respecter of persons when it comes to his grace. He gives his grace freely. And if it ever was grace that was earned or grace that was deserved, it would never be grace. Because it's a free, loving gift from a loving God. And God is the one who told Noah, build the ark. God is the one who gave Noah specific instructions on the vessel that would allow he and his family to endure the flood. So the hero of the story 
isn't a mean and angry God. The hero of the story is a loving and compassionate God. And why Noah? What was it about Noah that made him special? One key difference. It's simple. Noah believed God. That's it. Noah trusted God. Simple. Go to Hebrews. Noah had faith in God. Noah said, God told Noah, Hey Noah, a flood is coming. Noah said, Okay God, I believe you. What now? Noah built an ark. Okay God, I'll do it. It's that simple. It's not complicated. There's no advanced, deep theological lesson. Noah believed God. Therefore he lived. And Noah, hearing the word of God, responded to it in faith, which was a gift of God itself. He therefore obeyed the word of God, and now his life changed. While the rest of the world was eating and drinking and being merry, he obeyed God, trusted in him, and ordered his life accordingly. The result of that was the construction of the ark, which took Noah and his family to safety. God's word told Noah that life on earth was not guaranteed. And what the Bible, what history now tells us is that the promises of the world at the time did not last. But what did last, what did endure, is God's word, God's promises, and the ark which brought Noah and his family to safety. So it's the evil of humankind which was causal in the flood, but it was the grace of God that was causal in the construction of the ark and the preservation of those who believed in him. And I'll close by saying this. Now we see, now we understand who God is. We have a better picture of who the God of the Bible is. God is holy. God is just. God is merciful. And once again, the entire history of the Bible, the entire history of of the world, is God primarily dealing with people in a posture of grace, but then at specific junctions, at very discrete, specific points, he will interact with certain individuals and groups with justice, with episodes of wrath. But the overall picture is one of grace. And step by step, day by day, every morning that we wake up when we still have the same world to wake up to, and another symbolic flood hasn't happened, that's another day of grace. And step by step, day by day, there's a dam of grace that's holding back God's wrath. But beloved, that dam isn't going to hold forever. Because what the story of the flood tells us is just as it was back then in Noah's time, so it is right now. And the central question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, do you believe God? It is the most catastrophically important question anyone asks themselves for their entire life. Do you trust God? Do you believe God? Because guess what? A flood is coming. Judgment is coming. Just like the flood, it's going to encompass the entire world. The only way out, the only way to be preserved is if you believe God and you are in the ark. So here's my question. And there's no secret here. The ark equals Christ. The ark equals Jesus. So, world, I have a question. Are you in or are you out? This is not merely a choice. This is not merely a human selection. Because guess what? Christ is king right now. Christ is Lord right now. It's not about someone taking God into their heart. Because guess what? Whether you believe God or not, Christ is still king. Christ is still Lord. So I'm going to ask you again. Are you in or are you out? 
It's not about choosing God. It's not about making a choice for Jesus. It's about realizing what is at stake, eternity. You dropping everything and running to the ark with all your strength, all your heart, and all your might. Do you believe God? Are you in or are you out? God is holy. God is just and God is merciful. Because God is holy, he cannot deny his justice. Because he cannot deny his justice, all sin must be punished. But because God is merciful, you don't have to die for your sin because Jesus already died for you. So are you in or are you out? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I realize, oh Lord, just as it was in the time of Noah, we live in a time when there are many distractions and there are many things that lure people away from the most important question they can ask themselves in life. And that is, how can a sinner restore a broken relationship with a holy and just God? Lord, there is only one way to the top of the mountain of holiness. There is only one way to restore a broken relationship with with you, and that is through the atonement, through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For only God can turn away the wrath of God. Lord, I do not preach here today based upon my own ability, for I am irrelevant. It is based on your word that says, your word cannot fail. It is impossible for your word to fail. It is pure than gold. It is more valuable than silver. It is refined, tested, and true, and settled in heaven forever. Lord, I ask you, I implore you to use your word today by the power of your spirit to awaken and to shake the hearts and minds of all those who are distracted, all those who are allowing the modern world to distract them and allow them, O Lord, to hear your voice. As a sheep hears the voice of their shepherd, they shall call upon the name of the Lord. You shall regenerate them, and you shall turn them to make them see. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one central purpose in life, and that is to glorify God through his Son, Jesus. Jesus. Lord, you are loving, you are graceful, and you are kind. And the sum of your word is your love, it is your grace. Lord, Holy Spirit, by your strength and by your power, open the eyes of all those who hear these words, that they shall turn to you. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your compassion. For truly, O Lord, we cannot understand how loving and grateful you are. And we love you, we serve you, we adore you. Glory be to God alone, and praise be the name of the Lord. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.